And so all that said, we're in James 5, 7 through 11. And I'm just going to tell you on the front end, guilty. Okay, so I'm, I'm guilty in almost every regard of James chapter 5. But if I weren't guilty, let's just say I was the most patient person then I still want to study the text because I will eventually be sitting across from someone drinking coffee one day. And they're like, you know, I'm really struggling with this and this and this. And we can say, okay, let's go to James 5. Right? The pastor doesn't have to be the main one who goes out and makes disciples. That's the commission of the church. We go out. We make disciples to be disciple makers. We need to be discipled. We use our preaching as our chief discipleship equipping tool so that many disciples can go out to make many more disciples. All right, so James 5, here we go. James writes, he says, be patient, therefore. Real quick, why the therefore? We always do this. He just talked about the corruption of the rich above that. And in the middle of James 5, he said, um, verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So he's talking about the corrupt rich. And now he says, therefore, brothers, right? In light, against a backdrop of that, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So that's our passage. And it really comes down to this, church. You and I should have genuine faith. Not just a faith that we proclaim in word and deed, but genuine faith that we actually live out in genuine faith requires us to be patient. And that's incredibly hard. I am not a patient person. This becomes more evident as I'm working on a project and you are trying to work alongside me because as we work alongside in a project, as we're doing things together, you should read my mind, you should know how I want it done. And every time you ask me a question, it just delays me and slows me down a little bit more. So I struggle with patience uh, quite a bit. So if I were going to pick a sermon topic, this is not the one that I would want to preach to you. However, it has been such a sweet time studying this passage and seeing what God's called us to be, right? So here's what I want to start with. By the way, James did a great job on his passage. He had three main examples, three main points. So James did a great job. We have four because I'm going to one-up James. All right, so it's really this. We're going to look at what does he mean in each one of those three. But first, I want to talk about this. The presence of patience in our lives. Like, why does this matter? Or what are we called to? And why, why is this such an integral thing for James? Like, I want to kind of set all of that context. And we already did a little bit of that. Remember, the, the corrupt rich, he's... We distinguish that, that there can be a love of money and there can be a love of God, but there cannot be a love of money and love of God because we will love one and, one and hate the other. There can only be one God in our life. And Satan has so used the wisdom of God in giving us currency, but Satan has so corrupted that wisdom and he has made it something that is so tempting that buys for all the affection, all the comfort, and all the attention in our lives. 
Money is not the root of all evil. Love of money is. And, and in that passage last week, we saw why. Because the rich, um, they, they kept back. Well, it was all about how they acquired their wealth and what they did with their wealth. They acquired their wealth by fraud. They didn't give due honor where it was fitting. They kept back the money. And then they spent all of that what they had on their luxury and self-indulgence. Not on their needs. Not on what God called them to, but on their own luxury and self-indulgence. That was the issue. And then that passage I already referred to in verse 4. That's who James is talking about here. He's talking to the ones who are the harvesters in the field. The ones who have been heard by God. James is speaking to them and he says, okay, brothers. Look at, he says, uh, be patient therefore, brothers. That's verse seven. In verse one, he says, come now you rich. He wasn't referring to the, the corrupt rich as the brothers in Christ. That was a different category. Now he's talking to brothers. He's talking to Christians, to you and I right now. Because we live in a world where it seems like the, the corrupt seem to win, the wicked still get stronger. They're seeming to hold dominance and we're sitting here trying to live the Christian life. And don't get me wrong. We need, to, we need to fight. But we need to fight in the wisdom of the Lord. We need, to, we need to make sure that people know where we stand and that our faith is firm. At the same time, we balance that with verses in Thessalonians where we live quiet, live, or where we live, um, quiet lives unto the Lord. Right? We, we want to heed the, the fact that our faith must be known, but... But we don't have to fight a battle that was never ours at the same time. But you and I live in a corrupt world. And, and we live in a world that is like the, the, the rest of mankind, is what Ephesians says. And it's children of wrath. And yet God saved us. Yet God stepped into the darkness of our lives and said, I will make you my own. And he will use people like you and me to make others his own. Because he has chosen in his infinite wisdom to use really finite, fragile, fickle people to bring about his glory in this world. I don't know why exactly, but I think Paul nails it. He says that God saved him, Paul, so that God could show basically that if Paul could be saved, anybody could be saved, right? So he uses imperfect people, impatient people like us. But here James is saying, despite everything that you've heard, be patient, right? Now, that's good. You can, you can swallow, be patient, because, you know, 35 more minutes of hearing be patient over and over, and then we can get past this. How long should you and I be patient? Until the coming of the Lord. I bet we're praying for the rapture now, right? We're praying for the end of the world, whether it's premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, panmillennial, whatever millennial it is, and wherever he steps in, because, y'all, we don't know. We make educated guesses, but we don't know. But until he returns again, you and I have to be patient. I'm sorry. That's where scripture just corrects us. We like that seven times 70 while forgiven. forgiven. And we're keeping count of how many times we turn the other cheek. And James just says, no, you missed the point. The point is be patient. Here's why we are patient, y'all. Because the Lord is at hand. And he echoes that throughout. The judge is at the door. Like he is, he's, he's there, he's coming. And I shared this with the men one night in our, our Bible study because we may fall on different timelines and expectations and understanding of, of when the Lord will return. But I still think it's important to know that he will return because 
Our beliefs about the end times will dictate how we live in the present. If we know that the Lord is coming, then it makes being patient so much more bearable. We have a promise of his coming. The judge is at the door. Now, for James's original listeners, they're sitting there thinking, oh, like tomorrow, next month, next year? And you're looking at me saying, well, if he was near then and he didn't come, then how much longer is it going to be for us? You know what? We're nearer now to the return of the Lord than they were then. When he comes back, he comes back. That's what every scholar, every theologian should agree upon. What we don't know, we can't fake knowing. But you and I need to know this. He will come back. His promises are true. And until then, be patient. Right, so be patient. You're going to hear that over and over again. But he is also writing to them. Go back to James chapter 1 because all of this matters. James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God. So in other words, someone who's not living his own life the way he wants to, but he's a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's who he's writing to. The 12 tribes in dispersion. In other words, these are Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman world. Some may be gathering in houses. Some may be gathering in larger congregations. Some of them may be individuals. He's writing to every Christian who is scattered in the Roman world. Because they are the scattered Christians and not the sheltered Christians, he needs to remind them to be patient. Because you and I are not sheltered from the harm and the evil and the wickedness of this world, we need the encouragement that while we are scattered, that we must still be patient. So let's, let's start diving into it. And we will, but, but first, John 16.33 is one of my absolute favorite verses. It, it is, um, John 16.33. I find great comfort in this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, now he's already told them, by the way, he said, I'm about to leave. I'm about to die. He was alluding to his death. And, and he's telling them, I'm about to be gone. And then he says, um, the hour is coming indeed, in verse 32, when, when you're going to be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. So Jesus in 1633, in the buildup, he said, I'm about to die. And when they come for me, you will desert me and I will be betrayed by all of you and I will stand alone. And then he says, in 1633, such a comforting verse to, to you and me. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. It gets a guarantee right there. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Our comfort is not that we will not have tribulation. It's that he's overcome the world. That's everything. That's the sermon of today is that in this world you will have tribulation. I have overcome the world. If there is one guarantee, it's that we will have tribulation. If there's a greater guarantee, it's that Christ has overcome the world. And if Christ has overcome the world, then what in the world can overcome you and I? Absolutely nothing. Because if 1633 is true, if in this world I will have tribulation, but I take my peace in Christ Jesus because he has overcome the world, then everything in Romans 8 is true also. Like it's that one compounding truth that Christ has overcome the world. It makes everything bearable. Marriage in hard times is bearable. Friendship in rough times and brokenness is bearable. 
Cancer is bearable. Sickness and illness and betrayal is bearable because Christ has overcome the world. And if he has overcome the world, then listen to the truth of Romans 8. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If Christ has overcome the world, then whatever sin or antagonism that Satan will bring against you or anybody else brings against you, there is no condemnation because Christ has already defeated it. When Satan comes to you and tells you of your failures, you have the absolute and perfect freedom to say you're absolutely right. But my God is victorious. So we don't deny the failures. We can actually embrace them because we know they're true. Like what a weird habit we have because it's part of our old man to hide our weakness instead of be bound up in the strength of Christ. You ever been in an argument or in a fight whenever someone begins to condemn you and you say you're absolutely right? It takes all the strategy and all the wind out of their cells. When Satan comes to tell us how weak and fickle and, and fragile we truly are, we're saying, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know how he could love me, but yet he did, and he proved it on the cross. There's nothing that can come against us. Romans 8, 18, y'all consider this. For I consider, this is true, if Christ has overcome the world, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth Comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I'm sorry, as I read that, I just think of, uh, of Jared Fowler, the one that we just prayed for, who is now in the presence of the Lord, that there was suffering in the present time, and yet the weight of glory that he's in right now is beyond compare. So whatever it is that we walk through right now, no matter how bad it is, there is an infinitely greater weight of glory that we will take on whenever we are in his presence. If I know that the finish line is near, I can run as hard as I need to in that race. I can exhaust myself because when I cross that line, it's done. That's what James tells us. He says that, that until the Lord comes and he is at the door, he's ready. God, is all, and God, the judge is right there beyond this door right here. And the judge is ready to come in and convene his court. That's how near it is. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you push on. Just push on through that. Be patient with one another. And Romans 8, 31 through 39. And then we're going to be back in James. But the reason that I find comfort in what James says, and in John 16, is because all this is true then also. Well, then shall we say to these things, cross life, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us to all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies and who is condemned. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul writes, for I am sure that neither death nor life, y'all listen to this, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because we have peace in Christ and he has overcome the world. And he is coming back. And until he does, be patient because nothing can overcome you if you are in him. So now we're going to go all the way back to James 5. 
wanted all that for the context of the peace that underlies the patience that we have so that you can see how attainable it really is. But y'all, genuine faith will produce a patience that does not make sense to this world. It won't. The kind of patience that we're called to have makes no sense to this world. It is a supernatural, and y'all, I'm just going to say willfully determined patience. A new will of God within us will make us stubborn for this kind of patience. But you have to fight for it. You have to be willful to fight for it. You have to capture it whenever it's not there and say, Lord, give me that patience. But remember, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. That's why it bothers me that I don't have it sometimes because patience is a fruit of the Spirit. I think we're going to have to do marriage counseling after this one. <laughs> Y'all listen to this. The kind of patience he's calling us to have is an unusual patience. It is supernatural. It is not normal. It's the patience of the Spirit in light of the hope that we have in Christ. How long do you have to be patient until the Lord returns? So he gives us three examples like a good Baptist preacher, James does. Okay. He says, consider the patience in the farmer, consider the patience in the prophets, and consider the patience in the narrative of Job. Just to understand it, here we go. See how the farmer, he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until the Lord receives, the, I'm sorry, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. So be patient like the farmer. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Let's not camp out at number nine right now, okay? Let, let's just let that one sink in on its own. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what he just said? Quit grumbling against one another. Well, we would never do that, right? We're, we're redeemed. We sit in church together. You know, where God has planted a church, Satan is going to plant corruption and deception as well. He wants there to be heartache and hurt in the church. This is one of the biggest areas of spiritual warfare um, on Sunday mornings. It's not outside the church because there's where, where there's no contention or gospel being proclaimed. Why does Satan need to worry? But as the gospel is being proclaimed, Satan is absolutely going to be active in every way he can. But praise the Lord, he wants his gospel to go out and the hearers to hear. But we just want to be mindful that just because we walk alongside life together doesn't mean that we won't be tempted to grumble against one another. Because you notice he addressed it to the brothers in the faith. It says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Okay, I'm going to tell you something that you already know. But the Greek word for patience there is makrothasamisate, something like that. Okay? If I do it really slow, it's makrothamisate. Something like, I know you know that. Like you have it on a shirt. Okay? But, but here's why that word matters. Okay? So forget the odd pronunciation. I'm going to give you another one. I do think it would be cool if somebody said, what did y'all preach? You know, what did you preach about today? What did you... Would y'all study in scripture? You say macrothymosate. And all you have to do is roll it off very quickly. And as you roll it off quickly, then it sounds like you know what you're doing. You don't even have to do it the right way. That's a, that's a preacher trick right there. Whenever you're preaching, you have all the weird names. You just roll them off whether it's right or wrong. And as you roll them off confidently, people are like, I've always wondered how to say that name. Okay, so here's why that word matters. It, it really, this word, the original Greek matters here. Because I don't think we have the... We, Patience doesn't do it for us. That word describes an attitude of self-restraint that does not try to get even for a wrong that has been done. 
That's what that context means. The, the, the word for patience in the first two examples is all about having self-restraint that does not try to get retribution or revenge. That's a hard patience. Because I bet you're like me and we love to tell stories and we love to hear stories of revenge. You know, we like to hear, well, they did this, but here's what I did. You know, we, we delight in that. I bet Matt could tell stories that, that put my revenge to shame, right? But we, we do, we like to tell those stories. There's something in us, I, I think it's in our own nature, that, that we hold on to that aspect of revenge whenever... James is saying, no, the kind of patience you're to have seeks no revenge. It endures the wickedness. It endures all suffering. Why? Because Christ is at hand. Because he's coming back, because the judge is at the door and about to walk in and convene court, and he will settle every account, our job is to be patient and not seek retaliation or revenge. Man, I mean, that's hard whenever you understand that way. And he puts it in this context of the farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Number one, if I'm struggling with patience anyway, I'm definitely going to struggle with the patience of dealing with a plant. I got to, to, to visit with Mac and Jeannie the other day, and they're planting tomato plants and, um, and other, other things. I don't want to wait on the tomato to grow. I just want to go to the store. Like, I want the instant gratification of not having to wait on it. But they understand the process. They understand that process that whenever it gets planted, there's also only so much that, that the farmer can do. The farmer can plant it, can prepare the soil. The farmer cannot create the early rains or the late rains, cannot cause the growth. There is only so much that the farmer can do. And then in the meantime, the farmer must be patient for the growth, for the growth that he knows will be there. For the rain that he knows is coming or has to trust is coming. That's the kind of patience. So it's a patience that works and does its obedient duty, which right now for us is to not seek retaliation or revenge, but to endure these things, to be obedient, to fulfill the great commission, to love one another, bear with one another, encourage one another. We keep doing all that we're supposed to do. And then we're patient, much like the farmer who can plant the seed but can't cause a growth or bring the rain. There has to be an incredible trust of the Lord in our lives for us to live a patient life like that. The question is, do we believe that the Lord is returning? Sunday school answer is yes. Do we believe that he will really set all accounts straight? The Sunday school answer is yes. What's the real hard answer? If we truly believe that the Lord is coming, and that he will set all accounts straight and he will punish the wicked for their wickedness and he will celebrate and, and uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? He will celebrate and um, bless those who've lived a life according to him and he will welcome us faithful. If we believe those things are true, then that begins to shape how we live our lives now. We can endure all things because Christ has overcome the world and he is coming back. So our hope then is not in, you know what? I'm going to put a, put a post-it note right there to be patient, be patient, be patient, because I can muster this up in myself. No, our hope is that Christ is returning. Like, so if you're going to do a, a be patient post-it note, be patient for Christ is returning. That's it. Like there's a promise, there's a purpose in our patience. 
Who knows? But that the patience that you exhibit may be exactly the grace that God uses to bring somebody else to saving faith. We do not know the wisdom of God and how he uses our lives. Okay, so, so be patient. He gives us another one. He says, patience in the example of the prophets. So the original word, again, reminding you of what you know, and you're, no, you're going to notice that the pronunciation is a little bit different this time because it's like potato, potato. It's okay. Okay? But, but Marco Thasamite, or Simite, or Simitai, I don't know. Um, I practiced it. not going to lie. I nailed it. Now, don't know it. But I do know the original meaning. Remember, this is the patience that does not seek. There's a self-restraint there that does not seek revenge. And he says, as an example of suffering and patience, that Marco Thasamite, is that suffering and patience take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. That's all he says about it. So this is one where we have to know about the prophets of the Lord. Why did they do what they did? Because they were obedient unto the Lord. God called them out and said, here is your duty. Here is your responsibility. Go tell others about me. And sometimes I meant condemnation and sometimes I meant victory. Sometimes it was a message of repentance and sometimes it was a message of vengeance where the Lord was coming for a nation. And the prophets were hated and ridiculed and mocked and rejected and killed. And James says, as an example of suffering and patience, consider them. They did not seek their own. They sought what the Lord wanted for them. They did not seek vengeance on their own. Though we have looked at Jonah, he tried, and yet the Lord's will still stood. But that's what we need. Why in the world could they endure such suffering? It's simple. Because they were called to. I mean, we're getting down to the really core stuff of our patience here. They were called to endure such a life as that. God said, you go. And by the way, here's the cost. Everybody loves Isaiah 6. Who shall we send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. You ever read the rest of chapter 6? Because whenever Isaiah says, here I am, send me, God says, okay, here's what your ministry is going to look like. You're going to go preach and pour into these people. They're going to absolutely reject your message and they will not receive me. Go. I mean, that's the, that's the sign up. And Isaiah still goes. And he still preaches. Knowing that nobody will probably ever be converted. And yet look at the faithfulness of Isaiah. So we're called not for results, but for faithfulness, y'all. That's what I take great hope in. I just want to be faithful, whatever it looks like. But they could endure because they were willing to fulfill the call of God on their life. Some of you, you're called to, to mission fields that are around the world. Some of you are called to the mission field within your home, some to the mission field within the church. All of us are all called to go on mission. Though the Great Commission was not just for, <coughs> for the disciples or the apostles, it was for all people. So we all have to go, and as we go, and, and as you step into those different contexts, because I'm looking around, we're going to step into different contexts. Consider the prophets. Whenever they were rejected and mocked and ridiculed and even killed for their faith and what they professed, they were still patients and never sought their own. And James says, look at them as an example. You and I can do this because they and we both know that God is in absolute control and he knows what we're experiencing and the judge is at the door. It's do we really believe he's coming back? Do we really believe that he will set all accounts straight? 
So for me, there's, you know, this is where I take great comfort in God's sovereignty. I take comfort in his sovereignty, which sovereignty is a, a really fancy word that means that he governs all things, all, all and everything. There's mysteries in that I don't understand. You know, I, I look at the, the mystery of death of a, of a very faithful servant. Like there's a mystery there. There's mystery in salvation in that. Like there's sovereignty, but he rules all things. So he's either sovereign over all things or he can't be sovereign at all. Right? Sovereignty covers all things whenever we say God is sovereign. There's mysteries in there I don't get. But it's one of the most comforting theological truths for you and me if God is sovereign because it means that everything is within his control. Everything's his. He calls the shots. Nothing happens that's rogue to him. He was not shocked whenever Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He predicted it and it was prophesied in the Old Testament. He was not shocked whenever Christ stood or, or hung alone on the tree. None of that shocked him. God is not um, somehow surprisingly delighted that cross life is sitting here today. He was not surprised or shocked or, or caught off guard whenever sin entered the world through their willful disobedience. Like everything somehow operates in the great mysterious unknown of God's sovereignty. So there's comfort for you and me. It's in the comfort of his sovereignty that I'm encouraging you to be patient, to not seek your own way. Though the world says, well, you should definitely do this and this, we can say, no, I have a God who has everything in control. I don't have to fight for myself because he fights every battle for me. It's a, it's a willingness and a rest to be able to step back and realize that we don't have to make our own way. Christ plans our ways and we get to walk in them. There really is a whole lot of peace in knowing that God is sovereign. Why? Because the judge is at the door and he is coming back. But y'all, you should know this because I love outer space stuff, but um, I love to see new planets that they discover and stars, like I'm fascinated by that. And then whenever they're like, oh, we found this on the ocean floor, I'm just like, I'm, I'm a nerd, okay? But I'm just intrigued by this. But there's not one speck of dust hurtling in outer space to the furthest reaches and there is not one, one grain of sand at the deepest depths near the earth's core that is not in God's absolute control and sovereignty. He knows every single aspect of all of his creation. So there's comfort in the sovereignty. That's why the prophets could go for it. If they kill them, then they wake up in the presence of God knowing that they were faithful. There are words that you and I want to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Are we being faithful? Be patient. We're called to it. Okay, and then the patience in the example of Job. Not gonna, not gonna lie here. Patience in Job is hard for me to wrap my head around. He has three really good friends. Y'all know the story of Job probably, but if not, here's a man who is absolutely righteous. He's so righteous and so devout to God that the reason he suffers is because of his faithfulness. That messes with my theology a little bit. But read the beginning of Job very carefully. And what happens is that, that um, the, the actual phrasing is not uh, Satan, but the Satan, right? The devil. Like he goes into the courts of God. And God's holding court in the, heaven, in the heavens. And he accidentally goes, where have you been? He says, I've been traveling back and forth throughout the earth. Basically just looking for mischief. And God says, have you considered Job? My faithful servant. 
you can't pull him away from me. His faith is so deep that nothing will shake who he is in his confidence with me. I mean, the reason Job suffers is because of his faithfulness, not because he is faithless. And he suffers the loss of wealth, the loss of his family, the loss of his health. His, he, he loses his kids. He loses his cattle, his health. He's covered in blisters and boils. And he's just sitting out in the street, covered himself with ashes, ripped his clothes off. His wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, everybody turns away from him. And yet he never turns away from God. He endures with patience all that comes before him. And then these three friends show up and try to comfort him. Now, I want to, I want to encourage you in this. You really should read Job. And here's what I found as I read Job. Their theology really is not that bad. Walk with me on this one real quick. You're going to find past parts where their theology is actually pretty solid. It's theology that we need to hold on to. But their right theology in the wrong context does not bring comfort at all. So like as brothers and sisters walking life together... We do need to encourage each other and correct each other's theology and doctrine, but their right theology, whenever they deliver it, it doesn't fit the context. And whenever good theology doesn't meet the context, then there is no comfort. So read what they say and you're going to realize, yeah, they're right, but it doesn't match the context. Sometimes, pastors, we get in this mindset too of, well, what you need, is, here's the theology you need behind that. But it doesn't really match the context of life and where people are. And so there is no comfort. In fact, there's more hurt. There's more disconnect. So Job does not receive any comfort from them because even though they might have the right theology, they do not know how to comfort. They just know how to be theologians, right? So anyways, here is the word for patience whenever we consider Job because he loses all those things. Then he's got these friends and he even tells them, he's like, you are a horrible bunch of friends. Like, you stink at this. Like, just shut up, right? And and so here's the here's the words. This one's easy. Hypomony. That's the word for patience there. It's not the same as having the self-restraint that you don't get revenge. He says, have the patience of Job as an example of patience. Consider Job. Consider Job's hypomony. And hypomony, that Greek word, and y'all know I don't pull out the Greek words a whole lot, but but there, there's a deepness to their meaning sometimes. He says, have the patience, that's hypomony, which refers to perseverance in difficult situations. So we don't just have patience with people. We also have patience in difficult situations. When life doesn't make sense, when things don't connect, when everything seems like it's falling apart, when life gets difficult, have patience. You endure. And so all these together sound like this. Be patient and trust the Lord like the farmer as you wait on the Lord because he is returning. And he does a work you and I can't do or imagine. And then he says, be patient and, and be obedient to do the work of a Christian like the prophets. And now he's saying, be patient in difficult situations, but be patient, be patient, be patient. Have you read the end of Job? Okay, everybody turn to Job 42. Let's read the end of Job because it brings great comfort because again in Job, God is sovereign throughout the entire thing. It's not that God is not sovereign. It's that we don't understand his sovereignty. We don't understand the mysteries bound up. Most people, though, know the story of Job, but they don't know Job 42. And I love Job 42. 
Job 42 is amazing. Whenever we are patient and we trust the Lord, as Job did to the best of his broken ability, and even when he doesn't, God puts him in his place for about four chapters, as he does us. Here's what Job says. Verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's good theology right there. You should highlight that. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what God had said to Job. Therefore, Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. So Job's quoting God again. I had heard of you, Job says, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So, so Job has this moment whenever he's face to face with God. He's endured all this. He questioned God. He just wanted some answers. And now he says, I've seen you and I had no right to question who you are because, oh my goodness, look at you. I know nothing. And so he repented. And now consider this. After Job's repentance, verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these, these words to Job, and there's this exchange, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so he punishes, he sets all accounts right. They, they, uh, God is setting the patience that Job had right. He had the self-restraint that did not seek revenge. God is taking care of it. And then listen to this, Job who has lost all things, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, everybody who rejected, they all come back and they ate bread with him in his house that God has restored. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So his wealth is coming back. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginnings. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons now and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. And this, the name of the second one was Keziah. And the name of the third was Karen Hapuk. I know that that's going to be the new hit name in churches. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. Do you know what we see at the end of Job? The faithfulness of God in all things. I mean, the faithfulness, the goodness, the mercy of God. He's there. Job was patient in difficult situations in a way that I never would. I would be sitting there going, God, what did I do wrong? God, why are you punishing me? God, how do I earn favor with you again? And Job just sits there and he says, he is God and he can do what he wants. By the way, God, I just want to know why. And whenever God doesn't answer him, Job finally settles the account in his own heart and says, I don't deserve to know because I'm not God. So James is saying, please remember the patience of Job, that we have a sure and steady hope in the faithfulness and the goodness and the mercy of God. To use, use just very blunt, plain language, y'all, life is going to suck sometimes, right? It's just going to. There's no way to say it any prettier. There are many ways to make it uglier sounding. We won't go there. We're just gonna say that life gets ridiculously hard and dark sometimes. And yet we must have patience because Christ is returning. 
patience in all difficult situations. So he's, a, he's an example for us as well. Let's pull all this, all this together. And it, it comes down to just a reminder. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit, Christians, the fruit of the Spirit is, and it's going to list off several, but it's one fruit. Listen to the manifestation of the Spirit within us. It produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. James can call us to be patient because he's already calling out what God has put within us. He's not asking us to do what we cannot attain. He's saying there's the fruit of the Spirit within you. The Spirit will manifest itself in these ways. When patience comes up, cling to it because that's what we're called to do. So my encouragement across life is, is understand um, the verses that we don't get to seek our own way and revenge is not ours. It feels good when we get it, but it's disobedient to the call of Scripture as well. I have to wrestle with that in my life. You sit down and I tell you about a hard situation I went through, then, and even if it's in a meeting, you've got to be quick to hear it because I'll probably say, yeah, but then here's what I said. And I'll tell you, I'm not always patient this way because I'm just a, just a human that struggles with sin and temptation as well. There's something tempting within us that wants to cling to that sin that says, seek your own way and prove yourself. Because what will others think? Who cares what others think? The world has already been overcome by Christ. We care what the judge thinks, and when he walks through that door, may he find us being faithful. May he say, in this situation, it was hard, and you, you were faithfully patient. And in difficult situations, it was hard, and yet you were faithfully patient. And when they ridiculed and mocked and, and slandered your name, yet you were patient and trusted me. Well done, my good and faithful servant. So, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, because he can't control it, until it receives the early and late rains, which he can't control. You also, Christians, be patient. Establish your hearts. Be so rooted who he is, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They lost everything and yet gained all of Christ. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how he absolutely restores, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient. Because our God is so much better than any goodness we can imagine. And he's sovereign and he knows who we are, that we are but dust. Lord God, we, I pray that you teach us to have this kind of faith-based, God-glorifying patience as we continue until you return. Lord, I, 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 need to, I need to grow in this because I'm not good with patience. And yet the problem there then is not in you and your expectation, but in my personal growth. 
Lord, there is sin about us and sin within us. And whenever we desire sin or pursue sin, even in lack of patience, because that's what you've called us to do, and your word says that anyone who knows the right thing to do and they don't do it to him, it's sin. Lord, whenever we put all that together, Lord, my lack of patience and my grumbling and my lack of peace in difficult situations that endures those things, Lord, that's my sin, and I pray that you forgive me of that. And I know your forgiveness is already there. Our forgiveness is on the bloody back of the beaten Savior who knew all that we needed. God, your wisdom is infinitely greater than anything we can imagine. And in Christ is the fullness of wisdom. Help us to understand patience like that. But we need your spirit within us to empower us as we go on mission in this world to make much of your name. May we not just make much of it. May we trust it. Amen.